This is Guns and Butter. It's amazing now because at this point, under Clinton, neither Cheney nor Rumsfeld is in the government, but they're still meeting under the authority of a Reagan executive order that Clinton may not have known about for the kind of uh, things, warrantless uh, detention, warrantless eavesdropping that we've seen in a big way since 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Peter Dale Scott. Today's show, America's New Threat, Its Own Secrecy. Peter Dale Scott is a poet, writer, and researcher. His prose books include The War Conspiracy, Crime and Cover-Up, The CIA, The Mafia, and The Dallas-Watergate Connection, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, Deep Politics II, and Drugs, Oil, and War. He collaborated on The Iran-Contra Connection and Cocaine Politics, Drugs, Armies, and the CIA in Central America. On today's program, we discuss his new book, The Road to 9-11, Wealth, Empire, and the Future of America. We touch on a few of the subjects in this new book, including the Nixon and Ford administrations, Kissinger, Pakistan, Chile, Iraq, continuity of government, and the increasing secret control of American foreign and domestic policy by fewer and fewer people. Peter Dale Scott, welcome. I'm glad to be back here. Uh, The book, The Road to 9-11, almost 120 pages of footnotes. How long did it take you to write this book and do the research for it? And I also wanted to ask you what you mean by the road to 9-11. What do you mean by the road? Well, first of all, let me say that it took me six years to write. And in terms of research, I'm drawing on research I've been doing all my life, so much longer. But this is the first time I've spent so much time on a prose book. I have spent comparable time on my poetry. And uh, the the book that some people are comparing it to, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, by contrast, that book was written while I was full-time teaching in about six months. So there's... uh, And the density I apologize for, but uh, I'm trying to make quite a big argument, and uh, I had to condense, condense, condense to get in everything I wanted. In fact, there's some chapters... I really started looking at American politics starting from the Nixon-Kissinger era, uh, perhaps more focus even on Kissinger than on Nixon. Uh, I had hoped to start from World War II, but that just didn't fit at all, and that will be in my next book. I have a, a book substantially written from what couldn't fit into this book. Now, you ask about the road to 9-11. This is not a book about 9-11. There are 15 chapters. Two chapters are about 9-11. But they they fit into a quite close narrative that begins with Nixon. And when I'm talking about the road, I'm talking about giving more and more power to fewer and fewer people with less and less accountability so that... uh, The public state that's described in the Constitution, which I learned about in political science courses, 
has been increasingly supplanted since World War II by a whole uh, raft of new agencies. The most spectacular, famous one is the CIA, but it might not even be the most important here. Maybe the NSA, which certainly has a much larger budget, uh, may be more and more important. Uh, the result is because they're they're secret, they're not accountable. Decisions within them are only made by people with the higher classifications so that the people who over and over, take Afghanistan, for example, the people who are most qualified to advise on Afghan policy, they can affect what the State Department does to a limited extent, the Defense Department, but they're blocked out of advising the CIA and... Uh, this, instead of giving us a more and more sophisticated and uh, intelligent apparatus, it's, it is called the intelligence agency. A lot of us have been tempted to call it the Central Stupidity Agency, and this new book by Tim Weiner, uh, Legacy of Ashes, that's practically his thesis. Uh, decisions are made which are extremely unintelligent and which only could have been made in conditions of extreme secrecy where the uh, competent people are, are excluded. You get these secret decisions. The CIA secretly waived the prohibition on admitting a number of people. Uh, the chief, uh, probably the chief trainer of al-Qaeda uh, and one of the closest men to Osama bin Laden, a man called Ali Mohammed. I have a whole chapter about him because he was on, uh, simultaneously a lead trainer in terrorism. He did this while he was still on the U.S. payroll as a member of special forces. Later on, he became uh, an FBI informant, and that's why in 1993, in the RCMP detained him and wanted to arrest him. He gave them a piece, an, a piece of paper with a phone number on it, said, phone this number and you will release me. And it was the phone number of the FBI office here in San Francisco, and they did release him. And Ali Mohammed went on to go back to go to Kenya, take photographs of the U.S. embassy, personally carry those photographs to Bin Laden, uh, who at the time was back in Afghanistan. And uh, he and Bin Laden figured out where to plant the truck with explosives that blew up the embassy and killed over 200 people. All that happened because of the FBI having stopped the uh, the RCMP from detaining him. So it was another example of a colossally stupid decision made by a tiny group of people within what I call the confines of the deep state. No, no public dis discussion of this sort of thing, either the general policy or the particular application of it. Well, unless he was actually, in fact, in the bombing working for the U.S. It depends upon how you interpret this, right? Uh, yes. I, it's never... I, you know, that raises up a lot of conjecture. My book tries to stay away from conjecture and just deal with fact. But um, it's hard not to notice that America, it responds to enemies over and over, which are largely of their own making. You know, in the Tonkin Gulf incident, we responded to an attack 
maybe there are a lot of people here who don't even remember the Tonkin Gulf incidents in 1964. They're very vivid in my memory. This was North Vietnam. It's supposed to, well, it did attack a U.S. destroyer on August 2nd, and we claimed it had on August 4th, where in fact they hadn't, and that was the real beginning of the hot shooting war between America and North Vietnam. America was grateful to use an attack on it as a pretext to carry out a war it wanted to carry out anyway, and that is the great similarity with 9-11, that we use 9-11 as the excuse to carry out a war which obviously Bush and Cheney were absolutely determined to carry out anyway, not just against Iraq, although that was in the cards before 9-11, but also against Afghanistan. They had already threatened Afghanistan, said, uh, allow us to build a pipeline or uh, face bombs. I mean, we, we hear this, uh, it, the Taliban's foreign minister who has claimed this, but I believe it. Well, and of course, uh, the United States government uh, builds them up and then they knock them down. Uh, Saddam, yes. Saddam Hussein is just one example of many. Yes, he's another example, exactly. What would this enormous defense establishment of ours do if uh, if it didn't have these enemies? And if we want to go on, I mean, Saddam Hussein absolutely is somebody that we supported in the 1980s. And ironically, it was Donald Rumsfeld, although he was not in the government at the time, was picked as a special ambassador to go and reassure Saddam Hussein of this. Another example, which people may have mostly forgotten about, is Manuel Noriega in uh, Panama. And in 1990, uh, 1989, I guess, Christmas 89, we attacked him. But he was our man, and we had encouraged him to do the things which, once again, involved getting involved in drug trafficking. It was George Bush who had encouraged it, and it was George Bush who uh, declared war on him. Because it, it, this is not exactly true to the spirit of my book, because uh, we're drawing sort of poetic connections here, and I try to stay on a more uh, documentable level. But the, the the recurrence of this pattern I will be talking about in my next book because you, you, it just happens too many times to say, oh, one more unfortunate mistake. It's a, a, a series of mistakes that build significantly to the maintenance and the increase of this huge defense establishment we have that it may be defending the U.S. oil companies that invested in countries like Kazakhstan, uh, but it's not really at this point. I, I would say that on its net record, it has done more to threaten our security and to create incidents like 9-11 by creating the instrumentality of al-Qaeda, which is responsible for that. I do believe that al-Qaeda was behind. I'm sure there's some people listening to this program who don't believe that. I believe that al-Qaeda played a role in 9-11, absolutely. I don't think that's the total story of 9-11. But as I say, that's only two chapters out of my book. What happened Exactly. And then, of course, that raises a, a million other questions as what role were they playing? But, you know, I have to concur with you that your book is incredibly documented. Uh, decades of American history. Mm -hmm. I wanted to begin where you start in the book. You make uh, a distinction. What do you mean by the American overworld and uh, as opposed to the deep state 
covert, and the security state, military. Well, the first uh, distinction between the overworld and the deep state is easy because the deep state is are institutions like, well, the the big examples are the the Central Intelligence Agency and the National Security Agency, and nobody outside those agencies and very few other people are allowed to know what's going on inside there, which is antithetical to the whole idea of American democracy as an open society in which public opinion can steer the policies of uh, legislators and so on. Uh, the overworld um, is something like what was uh, – there were books written back uh, 50 years ago about the super rich, uh, the Rockefellers and people like that. Um, I don't care for that word because there are – most of the people I think who are really super rich uh, nowadays, like Bill Gates, for example, or the Walton family, are not – representative of my overworld because the overworld is that part of the super rich who are leaning on government and trying to steer it. And um, I'm going to quote another uh, quote about which is – this one is in a letter from uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, He wrote to Colonel House in 1933 and he said, the real truth is, as you and I know – that a financial element in the larger centers has owned the government ever since the days of Andrew Jackson. Well, I'm sure FDR, who came from one of those overworld families himself, the Roosevelts were not not puny in their holdings, but not as wealthy as, say, the Harrimans or some other people. He knew what he was talking about. And uh, this is... uh, Uh, Here's Theodore Roosevelt in 1912. We hold it a prime duty of the people to free our government from the control of money. Uh, And I have a quote from Jefferson in the same vein. So it has always been a problem in America. I don't want to sound as if it only began with World War II, but it has become more acute. It's it's actually a history that goes up and down, up and down. Uh, The same Theodore Roosevelt who said we have to free our government from the control of money, also was responsible for many of the so-called progressive reforms, which we now take for granted, uh, like the income tax, for example, which was an innovation, and which some people today uh, in the overworld want to abolish. Uh, The few people are as extreme as old H.L. Hunt, the oil billionaire who said that he thought people should have as many votes as they have dollars. That was uh, going very far. But uh, Grover Norquist and people, they really want, I think, to remove what residual... I mean, already George W. Bush has removed many of these constraints or taxations on the rich, and Grover Norquist feels they haven't gone far enough. I'm speaking with writer and researcher Peter Dale Scott. Today's show... America's new threat, its own secrecy. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Uh, So there is an overworld. Uh, We can take the word for the two Roosevelt presidents that it exists. The personnel in it changes, but the control is there. And uh, in my first chapter, I spend some time looking at the creation of the Central Intelligence Agency of the National Security Council, the National Security Act, 
And all of these were essentially designed and drafted in Wall Street, and a, a, an extraordinary role played in them by Alan Dulles, even though at the time he was a Wall Street lawyer, had no government position, but he was redesigning the American government to create these new agencies. And at the very beginning, uh, it's not true now, but at the very beginning, the CIA and its upper echelons was almost exclusively, of all the um, deputy directors that I've been able to identify, I've identified seven, all but one came from Wall Street, which was voting Republican at the time, but it was a Democratic president, uh, Truman, who was overseeing all this. And uh, all but one of the six who came from uh, New York were also in the New York Social Register, meaning they were part of that sort of socially acceptable. They weren't new wealth. They were uh, part of the wealthy establishment that ran Wall Street and, you know, was many other institutions, the clubs and so on. That was the early history of the CIA. It represented the overworld in Washington. And uh, that has changed in some ways. Um, the 1970s are a very important period in my book. And the particularly the a presidency, I almost didn't write about it first, but then decided was the critical presidency, or Gerald Ford, uh, because for better or for worse, uh, he chose as his first chief of staff, Donald Rumsfeld, and Donald Rumsfeld then designed a huge shift of personnel. They cut back the powers of Henry Kissinger. They put George H.W. Bush into the CIA, and they put Dick Cheney in uh, as chief of staff to replace Rumsfeld when he went to defense. And that was the key to a rededication of America to bigger defense budgets. This was after Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam had ended, and many people assumed that we would go to smaller defense budgets. And actually, President Carter ran on that uh, campaign plank that he would reduce the defense budget. But thanks to what happened in the uh, Ford White House, uh, thanks to Cheney and Rumsfeld, uh, he was now facing uh, a, a very powerful uh, lobby, the Committee for a Present Danger, lobbying for increased budget, backed up by a new assessment of the Soviet threat, which was artificially created by George H.W. Bush. And uh, Carter, who had campaigned for cutting the budget, instead presided over huge increases and that same uh, combination of forces which uh, produced the bigger budget also produced the Reagan campaign and uh, the, the sort of total reversal of, you know, the, in a sense, America has always been aggressive, but the aggressions in the 1950s when policies were dominated by the New York overworld and the Council on Foreign Relations, they were mostly CIA coups. Uh, one in Guatemala, one in Iran, serving uh, vested interests, United Fruit in Guatemala, Anglo-Iranian oil, and the American oil companies in Iran. But when it came to actual invasions, you know, there was uh, Nixon put a lot of pressure on Eisenhower in 54 to go to the rescue of the French at Dien Bien Phu, 
And Eisenhower, who knew something about war, having presided over the Allied armies, would have none of that. But since 1980, it's been different. We don't just run coups now. We still do, but we also wage wars. We built them up slowly. First it was Grenada, then it was Panama, then it was Afghanistan. But now we've got what some people have wanted all these years. Uh, they wanted it, and they've got it, this huge fiasco in Iraq. They wanted to fight another Vietnam and win it. They are fighting another Vietnam, and they're not going to win it, but they got what they wanted, and this book is largely describing the processes of how we got there. Let's talk a little bit about Nixon. I was absolutely horrified at some of the descriptions in your book about the Nixon administration and Kissinger. Uh, Of course, a lot of us know that Cambodia was secretly bombed, and of course Mm -hmm. we have the a bombing of Vietnam. But in that chapter, you talk about Pakistan and uh, East Pakistan Mm -hmm. that became Bangladesh and the slaughter of between one and two million people there. Could you talk a little bit about that and Kissinger's involvement? Yes, I'd I'd like to talk about some other Kissinger examples. Uh, But first of all, I'm going to try to be kind to Kissinger before we have to understand that when Nixon was elected president, the country was coming apart. It looked as if the world was coming apart, that America, who had essentially uh, sort of managed most of the world while... uh, blocking try, or trying to block Russia and China from coming in, uh, it looked as if it was losing its grip, partly because of the confusion at home. Uh, the style of Nixon and Kissinger was to dream up policies on their own. Uh, they would be opposed by the Secretary of Defense on defense measures. Uh, they would ignore that. They'd be opposed by the Secretary of State. These was Nixon's Secretary of Defense, Nixon's Secretary of State. But they froze them out and made these policy decisions themselves, which made a bit of sense in the very short run. But A, some of them were extremely bloody. Pakistan, an extreme example. Chile, also very bloody. Also very small small group decision. Um, And uh, in the case of Pakistan, uh, not only did it mean that the moderates were wiped out because of the uh, encouragement that Kissinger personally gave to, I guess it was Ayub Khan then, this was all tied in with Pakistan being vital to Nixon's and Kissinger's intentions to go to China and Pakistan was the key to that because Pakistan was an ally of China and that's why America became a very strong ally. uh, In their eyes, an ally of uh, Pakistan, but really an ally of the dictator ruling Pakistan against the Pakistani people, which uh, led to wholesale uh, massacre in uh, East Pakistan. And eventually the Indians came in to restore order and the upshot of that was independence and what we call now Bangladesh. And once again, we had State Department people there who knew the country very well and were appalled, absolutely appalled at what was happening. 
and there was, I think, a consul there by the name, of, unfortunately, of Blood. And uh, Mr. Blood circulated a memorandum which inevitably became remembered as the Blood Memo, uh, which he said, you're, what you're backing is a policy of wholesale slaughter. And, of course, it was one also with long-term implications because uh, Ayub Khan was backing the Islamist extremists in Pakistan against the more moderate people. And uh, that led to, he was in power for a number of years, and throughout those years, you got more and more of these so-called madrasas, which are schools that taught Islam and not much else. The bright students learned to memorize the Quran, but was a, a turning away from the British educational system, which was uh, bringing the Western world, math, science, all that sort of thing. If Pakistan has been so much more proven to be so much more economically backward than India, a major factor is being the extent to which the Islamists took over the educational system. Not the public educational system, but there is no money for public education in Pakistan. All the money goes to the army, and that is something else that we encouraged. We made the army powerful because what we wanted to back in Pakistan was precisely the army, first in something called uh, CENTO, the Central it was a, a treaty organization which fell apart when the Shah was overthrown. Uh, so it was disastrous in the long run for Pakistan, but it was disastrous in the long run for us. And, uh, you know, Seymour Hersh did his first book, The Price of Power, which is a very close look at uh, the Kissinger-Nixon years. A very good book, much better than his later books. Uh, and he points out that Kissinger made all these confident predictions of why he was doing it, and not one of his predictions proved to be correct. Because, you know, Kissinger was a clever man, but you can't expect one man to know what's going on on the ground in every subcontinent of the earth. But yet, what we have created in America is uh, this uh, huge mechanism in which a very small people. It's the neocons now in the Bush administration. But uh, as I say, you can't blame what's happening now just on George H.W. Bush and Dick Cheney. There, there are some things I think you can blame on Dick Cheney, and maybe you will get to them. But this whole idea that a tiny group of people could hijack American policy and commit us to disastrous, clearly disastrous things like the war in Iraq— I, you know, if you, if you took 100 Iraq experts out of the State Department and the universities of this country and asked them in the year 2002, is this going to work or is it going to be a disaster? I can't imagine that less than maybe 85% of the experts would have said it's going to be a disaster. I'm not an expert. But, well, I, had, I did spend four years in, at, you know, in, in the Canadian Foreign Service. It was obvious to me it was going to be a disaster. It, it's, uh, if anything, been not quite as disastrous as I thought it would be. I'm speaking with writer and researcher Peter Dale Scott. Today's show, America's New Threat, Its Own Secrecy. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. 
Now, with regard to Pakistan and what you've just said about uh, Henry Kissinger and Nixon's involvement there, this, in fact, is a pattern, though, isn't it, for the United States government to support extremists of one variety or another against popular socialist-type movements. Yes, because basically America, uh, with increasing uh, energy, has wanted to control the world. And uh, democracies are the hardest countries to control, and dictatorships are the easiest countries to control. I'd like to give the other great example from the Nixon era is Chile. Originally, Kissinger, who was thinking uh, global uh, geopolitics, very worried about the Soviet Union, was sort of bored by the subject of Chile. And uh, he famously said at one point early on that Chile is a dagger poised at the heart of Antarctica. Uh, meaning we d- we don't have to worry about it. And here's a case of the overworld coming in because David Rockefeller, who the Rockefellers had promoted the careers of, first of all, Henry Kissinger and secondly, Zbigniew Brzezinski. And they both of those men in office listened very carefully to the Rockefellers. David Rockefeller, in his autobiography, uh, he he dissembles in some parts of his biography, but autobiography. But he's very candid about his role in persuading the White House uh, to do something about Allende. When the, he did so in 1970, when the upshot was that they murdered the constitutionalist uh, head of the armed forces because he wouldn't run a coup. But that was a Rockefeller-generated policy. It was supported by the CIA. Uh, the CIA had the same point of view as Rockefeller because they were getting their intelligence, uh, if that's the word for it, uh, from the same right-wing sources in Chile who were personal friends of David Rockefeller. And that's another example of what has been wrong since World War II, that we have we, we have killed a large numbers of innocent civilians uh, for the sake of IT&T in uh, Chile, I have to say for the sake of Chase Manhattan in Chile. It had a number of investments, and that's why David Rockefeller went to the White House. It's not just because he read the newspapers and something caught his eye. It's because he wanted to defend his interests, and of course he will want to do that. And we have set up a, a structure in this country where the very wealthy can do that, and uh, it's still happening. You make an interesting point in your preface to the book about how the foreign capital flooding into the United States and the ill effect that it has on the society as a whole. The spoils of imperialism are usually presented as positive for the empire. What did you mean that this uh, this money has had an ill effect on our society as a whole? I think anyone who studied empires in the plural, and particularly the the big four since the Renaissance, which are the Spanish, the Dutch, the British, and now the American, you see certain recurring phenomena. And the the Spanish empire is perhaps the clearest example of this. Uh, Spain just tumbled on this endless supply of gold and silver coming out of South America. Did that make Spain richer? Well, in a sense, it certainly made the, the royal family richer. 
for the middle classes, it was a disaster. It meant that, uh, I mean, certain economic processes happened here. Well, we, we see it. We'll recognize this from what's happening today in America. Uh, it was inflationary, and uh, prices go up. What's happening in America today? Uh, people in countries where they're not sure of the future of the country, they invest in America. A great many of them invest in real estate. They buy houses, apartment buildings. What's going to happen? We've seen this absurd uh, escalation in the price, the pricing of housing. I mean, I uh, I do talk about this in the preface. How my second year as an assistant professor, I had a chance to buy a house for twenty five thousand dollars in Berkeley. I almost bought it. Then I learned that three years earlier it had been on the market for twelve thousand five hundred. And I said, well, I don't want to be caught as a stupid idiot, so I didn't buy the house at twenty five thousand. I bought one at 34000 and it sold uh, a couple of years ago. My ch- it went to my children in the divorce, and uh, my children sold it for $750,000. So there, we have seen that kind of escalation in prices. Um, this was good for the middle class as long as they could deduct their interest payments from the income tax. But by and large, it's had a very depressing effect on the civilian economy, uh, we we have seen the gradual collapse of the civilian economy in this country. We have been converted. Eisenhower warned us in 1961 about the military-industrial complex, but the military-industrial complex, starting really in the late 70s, early 80s, has become what drives the economy now, and the purely civilian part of it, if you take uh, automobiles as an example, is in terrible trouble uh, because of the price of the dollar. The dollar is overvalued, still is overvalued. And um, this disaster for the civilian economy in America today exactly parallels what happened in Spain, that Spain ceased to be a progressive industrial country. All of that went, it went particularly to uh, an area of Europe which it controlled at the time, the Netherlands, and the first thing you knew was the Netherlands were much tinier country, but was surpassing uh, Spain as an imperial presence in in Asia. And uh, the uh, well, I mean, I could get into details here, but the the overall pattern, and uh, it's been very well written about by Kevin Phillips in his book Wealth and Democracy, is that. Uh, as a country prospers, it expands. As it expands, it gets overseas and builds up its military to defend what it has overseas. The civilian part of the economy suffers. And eventually, all those other three empires collapsed quite quickly in a series of wars which were very largely of their own making, which they hoped to win but which, in fact, they whether they won or lost, Britain did win World War II in a sense, but in another sense, it lost. It lost its empire. It lost its economy, uh, became secondary to the rest of Europe and particularly to Germany, who were the, the official losers in the war. That dramatic end to British domination of the world was a repeat of Dutch domination of Asia, Spanish domination of uh, Latin America and Asia. And uh, 
I don't want America to have a crash landing uh, the way that these other empires did. I want America to find a way to coexist in the uh, a multinational uh, international establishment the way I believe a lot of America's uh, leaders would like to see. And, of course, this is exactly what the uh, neocons in the Bush administration don't want. They want unilateral supremacy. I'm certain that unilateral supremacy would hasten American decline, not uh, not keep it from happening. Could you talk about uh, the continuity of government? Now, in your book, The Road to 9-11, there's been a long road for the continuity of government. This is not a new idea, is it? No. Um, if, the, if there is a plot line to, the, to explain the title, it's probably following what we mean by continuity of government which originally was uh, something which had to be, which was what do you do if there's a nuclear attack? If the government is, as they say, decapitated, you lose the president and the vice president and the speaker of the house. And so you come up with emergency contingency plans. And uh, there was a lot of this in the 50s because they took the threat of nuclear war very seriously and they hollowed out entire mountains where people could go. But again, in the 1980s now, really, uh, or late 70s, uh, it became something else. It became increasingly uh, plans um, not for continuity of government. COG is what it's called, or COG. Uh, but I say, really, it, it became so focused on uh, dealing with... Uh, uh, not with uh, nuclear warfare, but with internal dissent that I, th I said it should really be called change of government. And we got a glimpse of it in the 1980s uh, when the, the man at the desk, uh, George Bush was in charge of it. They had a committee of people advising. Two of the people advising at this time were Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. And this is very interesting because Donald Rumsfeld wasn't in the government but he was planning to suspend – he was empowered to plan for the suspension of the American Constitution. And uh, Oliver North was uh, taking part in exercises for mass warrantless detentions of people. I think they had uh, all the supporters of uh, El Salvador in mind in this country. Uh, these were large-scale plans and uh, – there was some limited exposure of this in the middle of Iran-Contra. And as a result, we were told, well, the plans have been abolished. Well, they, the exercises were abolished. The plans were not abolished. And at the end of the Reagan era, there was a, an executive order which explicitly said now that COG planning was not just for a nuclear catastrophe but for any emergency and we know that 9-11 fit that definition because whether or not the listeners know this, COG was in fact implemented on September the 11th, 2001. I think this is the central event, the most important event of what happened in the response to the uh, horrible uh, disasters of that day. And... Um, 
There are two very good books about this, uh, James Bamford, uh, Pretext for War, and James Mann, The Rise of the Vulcans. But both of these books shared a common error. They thought that this planning ended under Clinton. It's possible that Clinton thought that the kind of Oliver North planning ended, but it didn't end. It, uh, we know this from Coburn's biography of Rumsfeld, where he, he quotes somebody from inside the Pentagon saying that they continued to have these meetings, planning. It's amazing now because at this point, under Clinton, neither Cheney nor Rumsfeld is in the government, but they're still meeting under the authority of a Reagan executive order that Clinton may not have known about for the kind of uh, things, warrantless uh, detention, warrantless eavesdropping that we've seen in a big way since 9-11, and which I'm totally convinced came out. Where did the Patriot come from? It was like the Tonkin Gulf Resolution. Suddenly it was there, but the Tonkin Gulf Resolution had been prepared long in advance of the Tonkin Gulf incidents, and the Patriot Act obviously had been prepared long in advance of 9-11. And it has made into legislation some of these things that initially were just gleams in the eye of Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. I'm speaking with writer and researcher Peter Dale Scott. Today's show, America's New Threat, Its Own Secrecy. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. With regard to the continuity of government, could you take that back to Watergate and talk a little bit about the Watergate break-in and James McCord? Wasn't he involved with uh, the precursor to FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency? Yes, he was. This gets uh, very detailed, and I barely touch on it in this book. It'll be very big in my next book. Uh, I will have a whole chapter on Watergate. Um, Yes, McCord, uh, at the time of the break-in, was an Air Force Reserve colonel in an obscure program of the Office of Emergency Preparedness, which was the predecessor agency to what has been known since 1979 as FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. And he was responsible, his group was responsible for contingency plans, quote, in the event of a national emergency for imposing censorship and preventive detention of civilian security risks who would be placed in military camps. Now, you know, that sounds so un-American. But for those of you who were around back in the 1970s, as I was, those weren't just ideas in people's heads. Those were actual plans being implemented. And Ronald Reagan was a big figure in this. He, he was governor of California, and he uh, presided over, was it Operation Garden Plot? Uh, he brought in a British counterterrorism expert who had sort of guided the British campaign to eliminate terrorists in uh, in Malaya by uh, winning the hearts and minds of the people, and they imported him to California to conduct counterinsurgency operations in California. This was not uh, totally crazy, you know. It was an era when we, we did have a lot of uh, cities uh, collapsing in violence. Detroit was the biggest example, but uh, there was 
risks of it uh, throughout the country. The army was called in in more than one city, especially when Martin Luther King was assassinated. So they had these plans there. And when Reagan went from being governor of California to being president of the United States, he brought his counterinsurgency team with him. And this Colonel Jufrida, uh, it's hard for me to believe he was American, but apparently he was, uh, was suddenly the head of FEMA. And uh, they, were, they were very, very terrified of African Americans and were talking about massive uh, creation of camps uh, to deal with large, large numbers of African Americans because that was their idea of security in this country was to essentially lock blacks up. And uh, we haven't really advanced very far from this primitive thinking because that's what Oliver North was uh, planning in the 1980s, though I think he was more focused on Hispanics than blacks. And uh, I got a little notoriety a few years ago because I noticed that uh, Kellogg Root, the uh, subsidiary of Halliburton, Cheney's old firm, had this huge contract to build large numbers of detention camps uh, right now. And it's part of a 10-year plan. And the, they took this uh, description of the plan off their website after I drew attention to it in a news story. But they were talking about a plan to deal with the large number of illegal immigrants in this country. Well, we happen to have more than 11 million illegal immigrants, so they weren't thinking small. And uh, I haven't followed this very closely. I don't know the current status of the uh, of the plan to build attention uh, camps, but it was originally announced as a uh, 10-year plan, and they also said that it, it had a... Um, a kind of prior history, and they pointed to the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. Well, I'd always thought that, if anything, Americans agreed on was this had been President Adams' most disastrous and most un-American decision, but they pointed to it as a precedent for what they were doing now, and they did describe it as a 10-year plan. And as I say, they've gone much quieter about this plan, but it, it was exactly what Oliver North was calling for in the 1980s and a man who was under Jafrida, who was in charge of the camp part of it, has been quite vocal since 9-11 about the need to use martial law more freely in America. And I think that is a direction that uh, Cheney and Rumsfeld and the neocons really wanted to go in. I think that the FEMA disaster in Katrina didn't really upset uh, the Bush administration very much because they used it at the time as an argument that what we need is martial law. And uh, thank goodness the government of Louisiana said, no, thank you. Uh, you want to federalize my National Guard. It's a state National Guard, and I'm going to keep it that way. Uh, and I think that we should, all Americans should watch very closely uh, how, uh, you know, th things have subsided to some extent. Rumsfeld is gone. Cheney is more of a minority than he was. Wolfowitz is gone to the World Bank. Uh, so maybe we won't hear so much about martial law. But I have a whole chapter about how America as a territory has become militarized 
to an extent it never was before, that there is a new military command, NORTHCOM, which is in charge of military operations in North America. Think about that. What kind of military operations are we going to have in North America? And they have been having war games, which are very highly classified, um, but there's been a bit about them in the Washington Post. I do consider that one of my important chapters in this book, and it all grows out, as I say, it's a theme with a history because it goes back to the counterinsurgency planning of the 1970s and very definitely to what FEMA and George H.W. Bush and Oliver North and Cheney and Rumsfeld were planning in the 1980s. Exactly. And you mentioned that the governor of Louisiana was able to resist uh, the Bush administration in terms of federalizing their uh, state troops. But I understand, of course, now that uh, uh, that may not be a possibility for other governors because of the Military Commissions Act and a section of that. Yes. Uh, I'm afraid I'm – this last year I spent more time proofreading my book than I did following the news. But it there are two things that happened in the last year. One is the Military Commissions Act where I believe that Congress – uh, gave the White House a series of empowerments that they were, were not really aware of. And then another one is that Bush unilaterally in the White House uh, ended PDB 67, which was Clinton's uh, executive order for uh, controlling um, continuity of government and replaced it with a new one, which essentially says that emergencies will be run out of the White House. Well, if we're going to be permanently in a state of emergency, and if emergency is going to be run out of the White House, we have essentially kissed the Constitution goodbye. And uh, I'm not being frivolous about this. I think that those are two things which uh, Congress has been uh, remarkably lazy about uh, rethinking, and they should be rethinking. And I, I wish that the Democrats had really taken. And they, they have plenty of things to worry about, and some things they are worrying about. But they, they should be worrying about these two matters that I've just mentioned. Peter, do you know what the current status of continuity of government is? Is that still in effect? Are they running a shadow government uh, as we speak? Well, I've tried to follow this as closely as I can and more than most people have. And all I can say is I don't know and I suspect nobody knows. We do know it was partially implemented on uh, on September the 11th. We know it wasn't fully implemented because we didn't get a new president. But uh, we do know that uh, Cheney spent most of the next 100 days outside of Washington uh, inside these hollowed-out mountains, and he wasn't there alone. There were something like a 100 uh, high-level administrators there with him. What we don't know is what these 100 high-level administrators were doing. They must have been doing something. They, they had become, in effect, a parallel government. Uh, and I have a whole chapter about parallel governments in other parts of the world, and they're usually disastrous. Uh, we had a parallel government in Italy which was blowing up Italian civilians uh, in public places in the Piazza Fontana in Milan and the Bologna railway station in 1980. Uh, we're, we're talking about large numbers of deaths, although fewer, of course, than 9-11. 
And they were doing this because they wanted to strengthen the public demand for more security and more power to the police and the military and so on. Uh, parallel governments are not good for democracies. Democracy, the idea is you get the government that's empowered by the constitution and that's it, period. Uh, do we still have that parallel government? I'm afraid I don't know and I don't think. I mean, because I do go to Google frequently. I have never seen news stories to update the news stories. Uh, and there were very few, by the way, that said, A, it was instituted on September the 11th, and B, there was one more very good story in the Washington Post that said we have had, in effect, Cheney at the head of a secret government for uh, for several weeks now. Did that end? I don't know. Well, that's another major theme in your uh, book, The Road to 9-11, and that is the secrecy, the increasing secrecy over the last, uh, what, five decades in the United States. Yes. To some extent, this has happened all over the world, but it has certainly happened to a far greater extent in this country than elsewhere. And the institutions that have been created and cloaked in secrecy, the CIA, the NSA, and there are others, um, are, of course, uh, they are incomparably larger than the equivalent things in China or India or Russia or any place like that. Yes, you mentioned some of the uh, secret agencies that I had never even heard about in your book, The Road to 9-11. Well, if I can put in one final word here, uh, this is not an anti-American book. It's, it's a, a book that wants to uh, get back to a more open and public uh, America, the kind that existed when I first came here in 1961. And the last chapter is uh, optimistic and thinking about ways that this could be done. Peter Dale Scott, thank you very much. Thank you. I've been speaking with Peter Dale Scott. Today's show has been America's New Threat, Its Own Secrecy. Peter Dale Scott is a poet, writer, and researcher. He is a former Canadian diplomat and English professor at the University of California, Berkeley. An anti-war speaker during the Vietnam and Gulf Wars, he was a co-founder of the Peace and Conflict Studies program at UC Berkeley and of the Coalition on Political Assassinations, or COPA. His prose books include The War Conspiracy, Crime and Cover-Up, The CIA, The Mafia, and The Dallas Watergate Connection, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, Deep Politics II, Drugs, Oil, and War, and his latest, The Road to 9-11, Wealth, Empire, and the Future of America, which was the subject of today's program. Peter Dale Scott can be contacted through his website, www.peterdalescott.org. That's peterdalescott.org. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. And our new world order is about to begin.
again, you know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life.